0: Welcome, everyone, to episode 260 of Some Like It's Scott. I'm your host, Scott Shelton. And though it may be the new year, we're still cleaning up the late 2023 movies we've yet to discuss, reviewing the musical remake of The Color Purple, before, of course, discussing the winners and losers of this year's Golden Globes in part two of today's episode. With me for all that, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are things?
1: Things are good, Scott. As you say, we're cleaning up 2023 movies, me even more so than you, because just me being in Charlotte rather than in the Big Apple, these movies are rolling out very slowly for me, a lot of them. And uh, so just getting a lot of, you know, the Oscar movies that you have, you know, seen it months ago in in some uh, cases. In a lot of cases, yeah. Yeah. Not to mention just movies that are out near me that I just haven't had the time to catch up with. So, um, doing a lot of of catching up, uh, but um, I, I'm I'm getting there. I uh, I am hopefully going to be seeing Ferrari this week. Finally, um, I've got American Fiction and Monster, the Coriata film, coming yeah. out this weekend as well. Um, a couple other things that I can watch on streaming or on VOD now. So, um, yeah trying to trying to make some progress. I've I've made like a little list of things that I want to try to get to before we have our best of the year. So
0: yeah, and we're still trying to nail that down exactly when it's going to be, but we will get to it at some point. I know we sort of glossed over this last week, but I realized it as I was editing and publishing last week's episode is that it's officially been over 6 years. What what what's what's up with that? That's crazy.
1: It is pretty crazy to think about that uh I was uh, a one L when uh, yeah. when we first started this podcast, and uh, and now I've been an attorney for three years, and uh, it's pretty yeah. A lot of a lot of life has uh, has changed in that life time. Has uh, yeah, uh, has yeah. been lived. Uh, there was a global pandemic. I've lived in about three or four different places since then. Um, you've <laughs> lived in a couple different places since then. Sure. Um, but uh, we we've always had this. This constant, and and I I do appreciate that. I think it's important in life not to get too profound, but I think it's important in life to have those you know routine constant things that you know yeah. you can come back to every now and then that are a comfort and yeah, you know, and they you evolve a little bit, but
0: they're yeah. still mostly mostly the same. I mean, the the show's changed a little bit over the years, not that much uh, in the last few, but I think I was even talking about this last year after. After the five year mark, when I'm like, how many things in our lives have we done for now six years? You know, six full years besides this. Not not very many, right? Like college, yeah. high school, law like law school for you. All those things are like four years or
1: less. It's outlived uh, like, all of that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which is kind of it's an interesting thought. Yeah. It's 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 really, it doesn't have to be that deep, but it is also something interesting to to sort of reflect on where this podcast is now one of those things that, that is one of the longest standing things that we've actively done for a long stretch of that like on a weekly basis for yeah for I mean years now so it's kind of it's kind of crazy in that respect we are talking about golden the golden globes in the second half of today's episode which is sort of the inaugural way we kicked off our podcast rain back in 2018 if we can call it that yeah. but uh you know it's as as the Globes have receded in relevance over the last few years, it has receded in relevance on our podcast as well, I suppose. Um, Fair. But yeah, also with the way I know that lots has been discussed about this in other places and, and kind of implicit in what you were saying just now as well, but there's so many movies that came out in December, especially that it was probably inevitable that some of them would leak over into January. I mean, we had a 15 minute discussion right before we went live about like, what other December movies we'd want to cover in, you know, the weeks available to us in January and and February. And maybe we aren't going to cover as many as we could and go in a different direction. Uh, we'll see, but it's, yeah, it was an interesting release cadence at the end of the year. It feels like the fact that this Wonka, Ferrari, Aquaman, and like, I'm missing some obvious ones. I know like came out like migration, which I know is a, a kid's movie but it like competes with Wonka. Like it, it's crazy that all those films came out and like within the span of a week of each other. And there was like nothing to talk about at the beginning besides like Godzilla and which I know we didn't even discuss in the podcast, but like Godzilla and the boy and the Heron at the beginning of the month. It's like crazy. It's like weird.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, I was re- remarking to you the other day that like looking at the end of January, early February, like it's basically all the movies that I'm, I'm trying to see that are all coming out in that. You know, you have all of us strangers, you have the taste of things, you have the zone of interest. Um, There's a couple more in there that I'm forgetting. And they're all coming out in this, you know, span of two or three weeks, obviously not, you know, big wide releases like the movies that you're talking about. Um, Yeah. I mean, all those movies that you
0: just listed, I basically all just came out in New York the last week or week and a half. And Obviously, it's a it's a delayed rollout for you as the guys. It goes wider, but it's the same effect of like, you know, I've got friends at work who didn't see all these movies at the New York Film Festival being like, right. oh, I'm trying to find some way Which to watch. One do I go to Zone yeah. of Interest, Instead all of, the strangers, all yeah. also the color purple. Also, like, you know, they're trying to yep. fit in like six movies and to a schedule where like, realistically, these films are only in theaters for a few weeks, especially if they don't end up getting a lot of awards nominations, because then they sort yeah. of just like lose their second their second marketing push. And we don't have the Oscar nominations. Yet, that's still a little bit ways away, but the fact that some of these movies are going to disappear and we're not going to talk about them again, and if you didn't watch them in like the two week window where they were out near you. You know, you got to wait till streaming or VOD, which is not the end of the world. But, you know, for those of us who really want to see the film in the theater, like especially some of those movies, like Zone, Zone of Interest is one which I think is going to yeah. get awards buzz, so I think it will be in theaters for longer. But like, that's a movie that you, I think you really want to see in a theater personally. Um I can't imagine the experience would be the same at home uh, for a variety of reasons, which maybe we'll talk about if we ever talk about Zone of Interest on the podcast. But regardless, yeah, lots of lots of really weird release strategies at the end of the year. And especially considering the. I'm not sure how many wide, great wide releases we're going to be getting in the first five to six months of of the year in 2024 makes you wonder, um, you know. If we could have spread out some of those releases a little bit more like why did anyone but you yeah. a film which is it a great film? No, but like is it a film that is worth that we would enjoy talking on the podcast? Probably. Why is that coming out on Christmas? Why is that film not coming out in like May? Like what's going yeah, on? Why I, I is mean, it not coming it, out it, on Valentine's Day? Like what, what's going on?
1: It feels like something, you know, again, that they just.
0: Oh, they're wearing right Adam Webb?
1: Many months ago, like, oh. You know, this will be great. We're going to bring the rom com back at Christmas. Here's here's yeah. something it's that like a know, when Harry couples can kind of, go of see kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, the couples can go see at Christmas, and they just didn't really factor. But it, like in. Christmas isn't really
0: like it. a couples go out to the movies vibe. It's, really it's like it's no, like it's no, take it's your fan, like take your parents yeah. to a movie, which is the which, strange part.
1: I haven't seen anyone but you, but I don't get the vibe that it's a family movie, really. <laughs>
0: I mean, it's an R-rated, it's an R-rated rom-com. I wouldn't right, advise yeah. taking your parents <laughs> to parents do yeah, this. Exactly. I mean, one of the funniest bits in the movie is very much like a Glenn Pal is, Glenn Pal is, is butt naked on a hike because he found a spider in his pants. Like, it's not really comedy for the whole family. I mean, great bit, hilarious, but like. Do you say so? I do say so. Yeah, it was funny. Okay. Um, <laughs> Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about today. Somehow, that, all that, we still get to talk about The Color Purple. That's what I talked about at the top of the episode. That is what we're going to be talking about for part one here today. And it is all about that new adaptation of the Alice Walker epistolary novel turned Spielberg movie turned Broadway musical, The Color Purple, directed by Blitz Bazawule, aka Blitz the Ambassador. This latest adaptation of The Color Purple focuses on the spirit of the Broadway musical, with compositions from the Broadway musical along with new and original music sprinkled throughout the film. It stars Fantasia Barrino in the lead role of Celie, a young black woman living in coastal Georgia under the thumb of an oppressive husband named Mr., played by Coleman Domingo in the early 20th century. The Color Purple follows Celie episodically across multiple decades, first in 1909 when she is married off to Mr., who violently threatens and exiles Celie's sister, Nettie, First played by Halle Bailey, then Sierra later in the in the film, for refusing his sexual advances. Fast forward to nearly a decade to 1917 when Mr. son Harpo, played by Corey Hawkins, marries a fiercely independent Black woman Sophia, played by Danielle Brooks, who Celia befriends before the former leaves Harpo. The time skipping continues as Mister's first love turned jazz singer Shug Avery, played by Taraji P Henson, comes to town and like a whirlwind shakes up the dynamics considerably in the household and showing Celie what it's like to be a truly independent black woman and reigniting Celie's own interest in reconnecting with her long lost sister. Scott, I'll stop there. There's many more decades that are covered in the film as it continues on. Did you find this coming of age epic musical period drama to be equal parts emotionally moving and inspirationally uplifting in its own way or did the latest retelling of the Alice Walker novel ring hollow and come off more like a superficial crowd pleaser that watered down the more serious themes of the novel?
1: Yeah, well, it, from a technical perspective, it is an impressive film, uh, to to say the least. I think, uh, you know, the the way that the movie looks, the choreography, the staging, the music itself, which I was not familiar with. I am familiar in general with The Color Purple. I've read the novel. I I. Actually, I'm quite a a big fan of the novel. I think it's uh, an amazing novel. Quite frankly, to sort of you know earns its its uh, reputation as kind of a modern American classic. Um, you know, so I, I think that it um, excels in terms of the actual production value and all of that. And like I was saying, the music I think is is good. Uh, it's 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 they are good broadway you know style show tunes they do sto- they have storytelling in them they're you know pretty well written uh there's a good mix of upbeat and ballads and stuff like that um and i didn't you know come away feeling like the the music had you know didn't really live up to to the material and i think the performances as well from the cast are are pretty pretty solid from top to bottom you know with with some people standing out that will we'll get into more detail. Of course, there are always probably gonna be standouts in a movie like this, but um, I think that the director has assembled a really, um, you know, pretty star-studded cast, and, and everybody um, from a musical perspective really has the, the chops to pull off the musical performances. I mean, you know, again, I've often been on record about um, you need to get people with actual musical chops when you do a movie musical, not, um, you know, Hollywood actors, just for the sake of having them in this. And obviously this movie didn't make that mistake. You have people like Fantasia, who is a, you know, a musician by trade. Um, you have um, Hallie Bailey, who you mentioned, also a musician. You have, um, you know, just a, a cast of people who can all do the musical work as well as the acting. And I very much appreciated that. From a storytelling perspective, I do think that the movie... Um, i'm not going to say it falls flat but i think uh it's it's missing a lot of the emotional impact that i think the novel does have um and you know some of those are some of the reason for that is is things that you can't really capture in a film you know you mentioned that it's an epistolary uh novel and so you know the the entirety of the the novel is told through letters and obviously um you can't really do that in a in a film and you know, I wouldn't have wanted them to try that. But I do think that um, for reasons that kind of become clear once the the story starts unraveling, the whole letter writing aspect of it does contribute to the emotional impact of the of the storytelling. You also mentioned the time jumping that happens. And I think that that is maybe one of the biggest um, areas where I think the movie Goes wrong because I do think that it um, is skimming over a lot, and you know, again, I'm talking about there not being enough emotional um, resonance at the end of the day. I mean, there there's a scene at the end of the Color Purple, the novel. I mean, which I think is one of the most powerful scenes, you know, that I've ever read, probably. It, and you know, I was kind of sitting there anticipating the whole movie for that scene, and it just it didn't even hit me like it could on the page, um, and I think a, a, re, a large reason for that is because there's so much that feels skimmed over, and there's a lot of elements of the story that are just flat out ignored or you know given very short shrift to. You don't learn a lot about Nettie, for example, the the sister um, character who is very important in um, the novel. You learn a lot about what she is doing in africa you only briefly get uh mention of that in the film but there's a lot more discussion of her story again told through the letters which she is sending to Seeley. um i think the relationship between Seeley and Shug avery which um is you know it, it, certainly there there is a lot of that in the movie but there's even more of that in the novel and uh and i think the movie was was missing um, it didn't didn't go far enough, perhaps, in depicting that relationship and how um, meaningful it is supposed to be to the story. Um, and I think some of the you know side characters, side plots, things like that, like the the story about uh, of Harpo and and Mister's children falls flat, falls short. Uh, there, you know, it just feels like some tacked on subplots. And again, um, there's a lot more. To those in the novel, you learn a lot more about Mr. Children. Um, yeah. There's two other
0: children that the film, film. like and, yeah, I mean they appear in one scene depends. and they don't even yeah. seem to be around anymore.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I understand that some changes have to be made for to bring this movie down to a, a reasonable length, but you know, maybe this story doesn't need to be brought down to a reasonable length in general. And I haven't seen the Spielberg version of this story. Um, from the 1980s. Of course, I'm sure that Steven Spielberg puts together a, a beautiful film, as he pretty much always does. Um, but I just wonder, you know, if there is, if there are some things that are intrinsic to the color purple that you just really can't capture um, in a film. I, I think it's very important to feel the time passing uh, in the this story i I think that's that's very important for where the story ultimately wants to go is that you feel the weight of all of these years that um you know celie has to endure what she has to endure and that you know she and nettie are estranged from each other and um you get that in the novel uh and i just don't think even in a two hour and 20 minute film which this is um it it even scratches the surface almost and so i think you know, again, if you're a musical fan, I think you'll you'll get a lot out of the musical elements here, and and you know, again, the the costuming, the choreography, the music itself, the performances certainly by the actors. If you are looking for you know a well-rounded story, um, you know that really, I mean, it is. I, I do think it is a crowd pleaser. At the end of the day, ultimately, I do think that this movie. I, do, I think that. The, that audiences will probably you know walk away pleased but and and maybe it's just my familiarity with the source material a little bit more but um i think that you know the movie stays at the surface level for pretty much most of its running time and ultimately that was pretty harmful in the end to me because um i think it has a chance to really you know like i said to to give you this scene uh, of catharsis that uh, matches few that I've ever, you know, come across in any sort of um, medium. And uh, when the scene arrives, it's impactful, sure, but it just it not what it could have been. And I think I just feel that about the movie in general. It isn't what it could have been. Although, you know, again, kind of like I'm saying and thinking about it again, maybe it couldn't have been, right? M- maybe we just can't get there with uh, with the source material. But a valiant effort, I would say, but I would probably say that I'm slightly more negative than positive on this.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I, I do think that I found myself not really getting much emotional reaction out of some of what obviously, you know, ostensibly should be some pretty emotional filmmaking at the end. I, I don't know if that's I would assume that it it it's quite emotionally resonant at certain parts in the novel. And, and I, frankly, I just like wasn't super moved by the film and,
1: and the, sorry this was another point that I wanted to make but I think that the tone too uh is is kind of all over the place because it it's the you know they're broadwayfying something that is you know deals with very hard topics and you know there are very uh uncompromising details in the story you know there's a lot of domestic violence that happens there's sexual assault there's you know a lot of um there's incest, you know, there's there's a lot of tricky topics that are difficult for a film to navigate. Um, and- Well, technically there's not incest, right? Because- Well, yes, that's true, te- I guess. Technically. Yeah. But, but <laughs> you think that there is. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. Um, it portrays anyway, it as if it were. It, it doesn't yeah. make it any, any better. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. But, um, it doesn't. <laughs> but jazzing it up, right? Like, especially the first few musical numbers, you come right out of the, the gate with these really sort of upbeat, gospel-influenced numbers yeah. and everything. It just feels like, you know, like when Mister is slapping is is beating Sealy, uh, you know, it it feels like there should be you, you should it's, the movie should linger more on that, but it's just kind of another thing that happens in the story, and the weight of that kind of gets lost at times among, you know, the crowded plotting and also the big flashy musical numbers and everything.
0: Yeah, I thought that was especially true. In the first act of the film, which were the scenes you were sort of highlighting. I found that 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 sort of tonal balance between this, the the music and the movie got better over the course of the film, but I did find it like a bit strange early on to have these musical I don't want to call them uplifting, but these more upbeat musical numbers when just the worst stuff is happening in like the first 30 yeah. to 40 minutes of this film and. I was trying to figure out in my head where it's like, well, it's not like you can't have deeply emotionally moving musical numbers um, that are sad. I mean, like Les Mis, like even in Hamilton, like uh, even like, you know, very like there's tons of examples of that where that happens. But for whatever reason, it it hadn't yet established like the right tone in the film. To be able to like deftly execute that in my it, and make me feel what I think the film wanted me to feel in that moment, and I do think that's sort of like a universal issue in the movie, even though it gets better over the runtime. I do think I do think it's a it's a bit of a problem that the film wrestles with over the course of the whole the whole runtime, not just in terms of the music and and the film, but like the film itself. Talking about the time skipping around, you were making that point where. You know, you're not getting to spend very much time or linger on these specific moments. And I'll be honest, like as a viewer, I didn't really feel the deep emotional anguish that Celia is facing with her sister, like the lack of her sister and the departure of her sister. Yeah, they barely even really illustrate to you that they that she thinks that she's dead, which I believe is what you're supposed to believe she's yes. feeling. But it's like kind of ambiguous whether she thinks that Nettie is dead or whether Nettie's just not writing to her. I think like it's, it's kind of confusing in my mind what is trying to what it's trying to represent, and I don't think that you understand the, frankly, like the nuance and complexity of Celia as a character or the depth of her relationships to something that you were saying earlier with Suge or with Sophia. To be fair, yeah. um, two relationships which I can only assume are are pivotal in the, in the novel and sort of the whole. Her whole development as a character sort of, I I can only imagine, like, really depends on her relationship with those two people.
1: Interestingly enough, there's actually probably a little bit more of her and Sophia than there is in the novel. This is one of the significant changes that gets made. Okay. One of the few. There's not many significant changes, but the whole um, uh, Seeley being there for her after she, helping her sort of to get out of jail, being there for her after she gets Uh out of jail that part is not in the novel as in as a matter of fact it's squeak who is barely a character in the movie but is the, the like, girl's second wife or of whatever. Harpo, yeah. Yeah. yeah who ends up sort of being that sort of figure for sophia and they end up bonding becoming friends and um squeak is the one who kind of helps her get through the rest of her life in the way that mary Stevie agnes use
0: her desired name please yeah, of course. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I just like there's. I feel like there is so much potential emotional depth to Celie as a character and nuance. Thinking especially around the way that she, the the sort of jealousy that she feels towards Sophia when she first meets her and she's with Harpo. Yeah. That is. Sort of, I mean, it's basically abandoned after about five minutes in the film. And to me, that was like, that was a huge bummer. Because I, yeah, because the whole, it feels like the whole point of this movie. And the, and I assume the novel is that like these, yeah, these horrible things are happening to Celie and she's experiencing so much, you know, adversity, oppression, whatever you want to, however you want to describe it. But like, she is not some angel either. Like she's this really yeah. complex person who is making decisions some of them are bad some of them are, are really bad decisions that she's making and that moment in the film that, that glimpse of it you get is like oh there's a version of this where this character is so much more interesting than she is otherwise and I feel like the rest of the I'm like I'm like some sort of sitting through the rest of the film after that wondering are we going to get that complexity at all and really it just ends up she's like this person who experienced a lot of hardship and she did obviously she did but like tra- tragedy porn is like not super interesting and not that this film is that but like it sort of reduces her character to just someone who experienced a lot of a lot of bad things.
1: Yeah, no no definitely and you you're right about her being a more complex character but again like in the movie it's kind of just like she you know she advises Sophia or she advises Harpo, hey, you should hit your wife. Yeah. And He does it. We don't even see him do it, right? It's, you know, again, talking about the movie sort of being sanitized or brushing over the difficult details in a way. We don't even see him do it. The next thing we see is, like, Sophia comes to to Celia and is like, hey, you know, why did you do this? They have a brief conversation. Sophia sings a song. And then she's gone, right? Like, she's gone for, you know, 30 minutes of the movie probably after that. She walks out on Harpo and you know it's almost a surprise when she comes back into the story right um, sure. so that just you know again it's 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 one of those things that it's an episodic novel by its nature because of the you know again it's epistolary it's, it's all just, yeah. and it's covering a lot of time as well and so it has to be sort of episodic but when you translate that to a film it just it doesn't quite do it justice because you can't get those details that are in like the writing and everything that you would in a novel about, you know, why this particular episode is so meaningful. It's more, you know, at least in, in a film like this, which is less successful, I think it's more just, we have to get through everything, you know, we have to get through all the major events. So we're going to move along now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And sort of like we said with Napoleon and a bunch of other movies that skip around with time a lot. Uh, because of that, it feels watered down when you're trying to recreate it in the film format. And maybe because it's always going to feel that way, maybe it makes sense to sort of Broadway a fight. I mean, obviously it, it was a successful Broadway musical, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe it makes sense to introduce a different a different theme. It's not like you're recreating the epistolary nature of the novel to your point. So maybe it justifies shifting gears a little bit. But if you still want the emotional, like some sort of similar emotional arc, for the viewer in the film, uh, this didn't quite capture. It didn't really feel like this really captured that for me. At least that wasn't my experience watching the movie. But yeah. to your point, before we do move on and shift gears to talk about the performances. Yeah, the production of the film is, I mean, quite impressive, uh, though I thought totally out of out of sync some of the time, like the musical numbers and the choreography quite compelling. I mean, really quite a compelling yeah. aspect of the film, really impressive. I thought the sort of musical performances, which will help shift us into talking about the actors and actresses in this film. I thought they, they were really well done. And to your point, films are always more successful when you find the musical talent to actually recreate this stuff. They don't ever let our boy Coleman sing. I don't think, but uh, maybe a, that's a, for, li- a
1: little bit, like but, barely. Yeah,
0: it's very yeah, briefed, barely. Yeah. but that's probably, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he can sing and he's great at it. I, I genuinely don't know, but uh, look, if that was a decision they made because they wanted him for the role, but he wasn't necessarily a, a big um, or as—I mean, he's like like he's acting next to Fantasia Barino and Corey Hawkins, so it's not like if he's got the juice, he doesn't have their juice. Like they're they're pretty sick, I think, in terms of their their vocal powers. But yeah, speaking of which, you talked about getting the talent. We, I was mentioning it just now. One interesting note is that. Several people in this cast were a part of the Broadway production of the musical, um, either earlier on in the 2000s during its original run or when it was revived in the 2010s. Fantasia Barino was Sealy in yes. uh, in the lead role there when the show was on tour nationally in the US in 2007. Uh, Danielle Brooks was. Sophia in the Broadway revival when it was back on Broadway in 2015. So they definitely pulled people who have experience with performing on Broadway in sort of the, you know, the actual stage production of the film. I think it's clear that from a musical standpoint, the film really benefits a lot from that, Scott. So I'd love for you to talk about who among the cast stood out from you from this perspective. Is it Fantasia or Danielle Brooks who had that experience of the show? before or is it one of the newcomers to the cast who was it
1: yeah well we're mentioning some of the shortcomings with sophia's storyline but i don't think that daniel brooks's performance is in any way at fault there i think she's definitely one of the standouts in this movie um in her supporting role i mean you know she right away you know grabs you with her sort of in your face um you know i'm not gonna just conform to the the roles that people expect me to play like you know she walks in there into the the bar where mister is with his father and you know she just immediately makes an impact and um so she jumps off the screen in that way but then you know we start to reveal the layers to this character we understand we start to understand a little bit of why she is this way and why you know she she can never go back to being subjugated anymore right and that, you know sort of comes to its tragic head in that scene with the mayor's wife and you know you, you see that she you understand why she can never go back to being subjugated um, but it, it obviously she cuts a tragic figure and then I, I even liked you know again some of the stuff which I'm saying deviates from the novel a bit like when uh, when she when we're at the dinner table scene where it was sort of all comes to a head and um, and C. Lee has finally stood up to Mister and is, you know, saying she's going to leave. She's going to walk out with Suge. And uh, she, you know, is telling him off. And, and Danielle Brooks just kind of starts laughing. She's been almost, like, catatonic at this point uh, from the time she got out of prison. Like, that vibrancy that she once had is, is not there anymore. And she kind of just starts laughing. And it's like that laugh, being able to laugh, like, awakens her again. And um, I thought that those were just really, really nice moments in the performance, like it's not surprising at all, you know, that she's played this character many times before, you can see that experience. It's something like, you mentioned Les Mis, Samantha Barks plays the role of Eponine in the movie and also played Eponine for a long time in the in the stage show and, you know, she's maybe the best performance in that that movie, the 2013 um, one, so. Uh, it, it, it just you know, you're naturally going to be able to to bring, you know, like Denzel Washington, Viola Davis, and Fences for is another example that comes to mind when you've played these characters before. Um, it, it translates to screen really well. But you know, talking about some of the other people who haven't played these characters before, you mentioned Coleman Domingo. I mean, I think the guy we're, we're huge fans of him, and he really does deliver here. Um, Again, Mister turns out to be a character that has some different sides to him. Um, obviously, sort of a um, brutal tyrant uh, in the way that he um, uh, governs his marriage. But uh, the movie is not simply going to just rest on its laurels and depict him as that and nothing else. Right? We we learn, you know, we see we, we're introduced to his father. We learn a little bit about that. We learn about his past. Obviously, with Shug Avery um, is a big part of his character and. Ultimately, you know, he is a, allowed to have as much of a redemption as you can have for somebody like this in the end. Um, and I think Coleman Domingo, you know, he he he, he captures all the sides really well. And he's just such a compelling screen presence, I think. And then the last person I wanna mention who might actually be my favorite performance in the movie is Taraji P. Henson as Suge Avery. I thought she was phenomenal, honestly. this This is such an important role in the movie in the story because suge is that has to be this larger than life figure who comes in who just sort of everyone is cast in her spell everyone is sort of taken into her orbit and especially Seely. and even as much as the movie doesn't get deeply into their relationship in the way that it gets in the novel like you know when she rocks on the screen you get it right like she does own that frame and uh she has that big character that big persona um that you can understand why everyone could just be swept away um by her but also you know she the movie it it could go further with this but it does you know acknowledge at least that um her character has kind of been fortunate enough she has this career she's successful you know she doesn't necessarily have to deal with the realities of what somebody like Seely has to deal with um and when she learns about the fact that Mr. has been abusing Celie, it's like, you know, she never could have imagined that this would be the case. Um, and so, again, there there is nuance to some of these characters that could be more um, certainly. But I think the performers do all they can with what's uh, on the page. And I really again, I think Taraji P. Henson, if I had to pick one stand out. Because that role of Suge Avery is such a a big role, you know, a a big role that she has to capture and measure up to. And I think she she did that every step of the way.
0: Yeah, I think Taraji Piansen totally stands larger than life in the film. Obviously, the way they they dress her and the way that she comes in with all these very um, over the top, very gaudy apparel with her car she makes her appearance at the juke bar like coming in on a boat with a with a yeah. peacock like fan and a you know very vibrant dress like she's so ostentatious of a character but she's also someone who Seely sees the other side of right like she's someone who grows close to her she sees her as this you know not this almost like removed aloof person who actually wants to know her and and get to know her and support her in the way that she needs to be supported and because of the time skipping it's really hard to tell, hard to really know exactly how their relationship arcs and how it develops and how it recurs because she's this person who talks about oh i'll be back in a month or two but like is she the kind of person who comes back in a month or two we don't really get much insight into that but clearly the impact that she has on Sealy is profound. And I think, yeah, Taraji P. Henson was a really great casting choice. Can't really think of someone who would have been better for that role.
1: Yeah. And there's even more with her character too, sort of of what you're saying in the novel, uh, because we see her that she's married this guy Grady, John Batiste plays him in the movie. But there's even more to her character in the novel too, uh, because we see that briefly in the movie that she's with this guy Grady, John Batiste plays him. But in the novel, she, um, you know, she she meets another man uh, who she ends up having a relationship down the road with after Grady, and um, that just sort of ends up contributing also to the complex feelings that Seeley has about her relationship and her attraction, and you know. Love for Sugar Avery, which again, the movie doesn't really explore that deeply enough. They share like a kiss and you know, they, they have a spend scene night together, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, but but the movie doesn't really get into the romantic aspect of their uh relationship at all, other than that, it's just kind of like they just talk about loving each other and everything, but it's just kind of generalized,
0: yeah. That was another thing that I was wondering, and I'm glad you brought it up because I was like, is this. The, is this something that is explored deeply in the in the novel? I had the sense yes. that it probably was, but uh, yeah, it's it is flirted with on the screen, but you know, ultimately is sort of avoided being addressed head on, which I think is fascinating because it's not like what when was this book written? In like the early '80s. Like it's not like that would have been a super broadly well accepted thing um, for a mainstream audience in the '80s, Around and I don't. Then, yeah. Yeah, and the Spielberg film, I wonder how much that addresses it as well. Maybe more so than the musical did, but
1: no, I actually, I think for what I've heard, the the Spielberg film addresses it less than this mm. movie does. Like, I think it's almost not even there. But... Mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's maybe that's not ultimately that shouldn't be. Maybe that shouldn't be that surprising. But yeah. anyway, yeah, I, I what I actually agree, I do think Taraji P. Henson's the standout I think Coleman Domingo probably second right next to her. Not because he's doing anything that we haven't seen him do before, because he 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 just gives he's always just giving bravura performances. I haven't seen Rustin his other film this year, Netflix film, civil rights movement film. uh, And I don't know if I will check it out, but I'm all I'm just always really impressed with the range he's able to conjure. But never feeling like, oh, that's like it all feels familiar and not in a negative way. It's like, oh, yes, Coleman Domingo can do this. Oh, yes. like it, it's kind of weird to say like he hasn't he's not a performer who has surprised me in a very long time, but because in a way, it's like the his range that he shows project after project makes me believe that he can like pretty much do any uh, uh across the spectrum in terms of what he's being asked to do and And in this film, he's being asked to do mostly the bad guy, right? Like mostly a very antagonistic type role, violent, um, in many dimensions and overall, just really, really inhospitable and unfriendly cold person. But then he has these, this arc, this relatively brief arc at the end of the movie where he becomes this warmer figure. And I think that only works if you believe that he, if if you can see the tendrils of that, in the rest of the film, like earlier in the film when he's not that, but you can, you you can see how this person could turn that on or be that way. And I think that's one of the special aspects of him as a performer is that he's, he gives you the sense that he can range the full gamut of, of that emotion and that feeling.
1: Yeah. Like the scene when he's dancing around with Suge Avery, even though like it's, you know, he's doing a bad thing because he's like, you know, cheating on his wife essentially there in in front of her or whatever you, you do get to see a different side of him in that scene, right? Like the person that maybe he could have been in another, another life had he made better choices.
0: Yeah. Or to- totally. Or if he'd like not taken things as personally, right? Like, yeah, he's this toxic male, you know, character who for the lack of a better way to phrase it, you know, was essentially rejected, cucked, however you want to frame it, of like Suge leaving him and whatnot and and not really developing their relationship further because he would only hold her back over her ambitions to have this, you know, larger-than-life type experience of becoming this jazz singer, this performer who, if she doesn't tour around, you know, lives in a big city and performs on a big stage. And... He can't get over the fact that, you know, it sounds like he's probably bullied by people in town, certainly abused by his father, and isn't accepted by the woman that he loves. And those things haunt him. Does that justify the way that he treats Seely and his children and other people? Of course not. It doesn't. But it definitely provides a layer of depth and detail to explain why he is the way that he is, that you can really I think you can really feel that in his perform in the, in the Domingo performance. And that's why when you see these flashes of who he could have been, as you put it, and I totally agree. Like it makes, it makes you empathize with this character, even though he's a bad guy, like it does. You see it. And, and I, I mean, I felt it. And I think that emotionally the Shug character and in in some ways, the, and, and the, um, the Mr. character, sometimes they, they actually evoke some of the biggest emotional responses in the film, even though they weren't the centerpiece of the movie. So, I you know, I wonder if that's different for you, because, like, obviously, a lot of the emotional response in this in this is the, you know, the sibling relationship, which we've talked about in the past. That's something that just like, again, I, I, that just completely fell flat for me.
1: I guess. Yeah, because they barely get into it in the movie. Like, again, like, yeah, there's so much more in the novel of all the letters again like very detailed discussion of nettie's life i mean it it becomes you know i'm not going to say as much her story as it does Seely's, but like you know you're learning about you're learning her a lot life through over yeah. over the course of you know years and uh you're you know you you, you she disappears after you know the early parts of this movie and you know, we we get the scene of her, of Seeley, of, of Suge finding the letters and Seeley reading them, but um, then, you know, she comes back at the end and that's, kind of, I mean, and and, you know, we're deep into the review. So at this point, that's the scene which I obviously was alluding to in the beginning is which when I read the scene in the novel, I was just like, you know, it was one of the most powerful scenes I ever read is when they are finally reunited after 30 years or so. Uh, having not spoken to each, or, well, having not seen each other, um, and of course, um, Asili's children are also with Nettie uh, because they've been reunited too.
0: Um, Again, a, a detail that they they remind you in the film, but it's just like yeah. it barely registers, and it doesn't. I, I'm sure that it is something that's deeply affecting Seeley, but it's not something that gets brought up in in the natural sort of x ex- externality of the film, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm sure so much of that is internalizing it, right? And it's weird if like every person Sealy Meets, she's like, I just wish, I just wish I knew my children. And she says yeah. it every once in a while, right? But you can't just have that repeated over the course of the film. Sure. And that's where the novel like is able to work, right? Because she's she's writing a letter. She's able to in that sort of more internal interior space, it's easy to expound on the anguish of that. But it doesn't yeah. it's not as fluid in in when you externalize it with conversation, things like that.
1: Yeah. And you just, again, with the, with the time skipping and everything, you just don't get the weight of how many years have passed Yeah, without them seeing yeah. each other when they are finally reunited. You don't get the weight of, you know, again, the fact that this relationship that, you know, maybe the idea that Nettie, could still be out there is kind of the only thing that has kept Seely going for so long, right? The the idea that Nettie and her children also and might that's still not be something out there. that registrates at all in the in the film. No, yeah. Um, and so when we do get to that scene, you know, sure, it's it's emotional because like it, it's hard for uh, that kind of scene to to not be, regardless of how you know effectively the movie tells the story, but. It just, it, it could be so much more that moment. Yeah.
0: Any other performances you want to call it? Anything else about the film you want to talk about? I feel like we've, we've sprinkled in so much of the discussion of the plot and the themes when we're talking about our general impressions and now the the cast, but I wanted to pause to see if there's anything else that sticks out to you.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, again, I, I would praise the, the choreography and everything like that. Like, I think, um, there's some pretty compelling staging of the musical numbers, and um, the the performers know exactly what to do. Um, I just think you know, in general, the tone gets thrown off a lot of times by these musical numbers, as we've talked about. Um, and there are certain things like you know, Sophia sings, Harpo sings. It's like oh, we're going to give this side character their musical number now. And, mm. I, and I know that's kind of just a musical, that's just kind of a thing that like, you do in musicals, whether it's a movie musical or not. It's just like, you know, every major sort of supporting character or whatever gets their, um, their mm. song. But yeah. in, in a movie like this, where it's, you know, some of the the side characters, and in particular, again, like I think Harpa's story, um, there's not a whole lot there. Yeah. Um, when they're, you know, there's potential getting... for it, right? But like, yeah,
0: he there's again, there's they're never bringing back up this this conversation that he and seely had, where he then went and goes and beats his wife or girlfriend or whatever it is. Like that's yeah. not brought up again later on.
1: They're not engaging with like the idea of this being sort of this cyclical thing, right? That he yeah. has seen. I mean, yes, he brings it up to her, but like you say, that it's just it's an episode in the story. It's not something yeah. that. Bears out once we get, you know, deeper into, into yeah. it.
0: And the trauma of her relationship with Alfonso, her, you know, yes. what, who she believed to be her father. I mean, it, obviously, it's very stark in the first 10, 15 minutes of the film and some very, 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 very bad vibes from that and <laughs> right at the beginning. But, you you know, the, this this character who's played by Dion Cole, like doesn't doesn't isn't even in, in a single scene in the rest of the film. And it is barely talked about at all in the rest of the movie. But the, you know, the specter of that, especially as it relates to, you know, her children, who, you know, he is the father of, the biological father of, like the fact that that doesn't, that isn't threaded throughout. Maybe it's too, it's too just awful to keep bringing it back up. And if you're trying to be this crowd pleasing endeavor, but it feels like that is something that the book it's always there. It sounds like.
1: And in general, the, the third act and not just the reunion scene that we talked about just feels rushed. Like the, you know, Celie finally sure. standing up for herself or whatever. It's just kind of like, okay. And that's well, right after we where she stands they, up for herself. Yeah. And yeah. that's right
0: after everything with Sophia, like she's, you know, jailed for however long it is. And like, 12 years. one and a half scenes later she's she's not in jail anymore and there's a you know there is a potentially like strong scene between Celia and Sophia in the jail but because of that time skip and how fast it moves it's really hard to understand the damage that that has done in that in that community
1: yeah and and you just, yeah, again, the, you don't feel the weight of all those years on Seeley And so this moment where she finally stands up to mister just doesn't it, it, it like does it gets there. It gets
0: there a little side. bit, but not a little bit. Yeah. yeah
1: um, And then, you know, this is followed by the the death of Alfonso. Right. And the, the, the knowledge that she is now inherited the, the shop. store yeah basically things turn around for Celie very quickly like it, it goes from like the depths of despair for her for many yeah. many many years until into like the blink of an eye and you know 10 minutes of the movie like she's running her business she's you know separated she's gotten away from mr she's sort of um with you know being taken care of and in the company of this group of women, Shug, Sophia, um, everyone who, you know, cares for her and who she cares for. Like, it it does feel like the, the, the crowd pleasing part, the cathartic part or whatever just happens too quickly. Yeah. I mean, you got to get there, of course, by the end of the movie, but like, um,
0: yeah, she, to your point, she had 34 plus years of hell. You know, of varying degrees, I imagine, with Mister alone in in his house, mm-hmm. and then she has three to four years where she escapes that, and you sort of feel that in in how fast the first part of the of the film moves, um, or sorry, the the length of time covered in the first like you know two hours of the film, and then the last twenty minutes of the movie, like you understand that, but the problem is is like the weight of those thirty four years, like you don't feel the true weight of that. To your point, yeah. Like there probably is like the proper amount 34 of thirty-four years.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy to think about. And I, I feel like they don't even really age the the actor, other than yeah, you know, going barely. from yeah. from child to adult. Like Fantasia yeah. and Coleman Domingo don't really age. I mean Coleman much, Domingo barely ages, ages at all yeah. the course
0: of the film. Yeah. Uh look, so, as well.
1: That's that's another factor, It's like it doesn't seem like it's been thirty-four years. Yeah, all, totally. for a variety of reasons.
0: Yeah, and then by the end of the film, it's been almost 40, right? So there's like three or four years after she leaves where all these good things happen, and those things happen.
1: Like, it's the right time
0: division in the film, probably, but the problem is, is like, that division of time is not properly accounting for what the character is experiencing and feeling. And, of course, like, it's a super obvious thing to say, right? But other films have been more successful at conveying that passage of time, and this one didn't quite crack the nut, I don't think.
1: Yeah, I'd have to agree. Uh, it had a lot to live up to with the novel, but I think it, it fell pretty well short.
0: All right, I think with that we can wrap things up with the color purple. What was your favorite scene or moment?
1: Yeah, it's it's a tough choice, Scott. You know, even though I think that the movie has some issues in this particular subplot, I think that you know we talked a lot about Daniel Brooks's performance being successful. I think that her song um, that she has after. Um, the whole incident happens with Harpo where he beats her and really the conversation that she shares with Seeley. even though I think the movie needed to do more with this whole, you know, part of the the story. Yeah, um, I, I don't have a problem with the way that that individual scene necessarily played out. Um, I think that Daniel Brooks, um, you know, you you feel a lot of pain, you know, when she is explaining what she has been through in her childhood and, and youth and as to you know why she is the way that she is why she is the sort of take charge you know woman who who doesn't conform to the attitudes of the time um and you know that flowing into the the song about how you know she she still loves harpo but like she just she can't do this right she's yeah. not going hell to go no. out. Name of the yeah, song. yeah hell no exactly yeah. and it's a repeated motif throughout the the movie um, I think that that scene just just hits hard, um, and yeah. performance is is a big reason for that.
0: Totally agree. So much so that I talked for like five minutes on this episode about how I wish there was there was even more uh, along that thread, which you said as well. I just, you know, it's it it was strong, and it, again, such a rich vein to potentially mine, but didn't go there. But what we got was excellent for sure. Yeah. For me, a different musical number, I'm doing Push a Button, which is Taraji P. Henson's as Suge Avery's big number at Harpo's Juke. And that's, I talked about sort of the entrance that she makes and the electricity of that performance and that that is like sort of the best staged number in my mind. And it's clear that the film wanted to go that direction, right? The film wanted to do this thing. and although I think it has a mixed success in the grand macro level view of the film and what it caused, how it causes us to balance other aspects when it actually does what it wants to do here. It's very successful at it. I think the number is, is very catchy. It's well performed. It's well choreographed. It's well executed. Everything really worked well in that. And it's a really enjoyable
1: scene from the film for me. Yeah, that's, that's uh, up there high for me too.
0: All right, out of 10, what are we giving the color purple 2023?
1: I give it a 6.3. I have to commend the uh technical aspects of the movie, the performances especially. I think, you know, uh that part of the movie is really really successful. Like I, I don't want to under understate that. But um a lot of missed opportunities in the storytelling here. Um some which, you know, maybe couldn't have been avoided, but a lot which I feel like could have been. So 6.3.
0: Yeah, I thought that you would be higher than me for some reason. I'm not 100% sure why I thought that, but the vibe I was getting was that you'd be higher than me, but we're about the same place. I had given it a 6.4. So, it's it didn't quite live up to everything i heard about. It. I mean, I'm I'm a novice when it comes to the story. I've not read the novel. I've not seen any version of of the adaptation whether the Spielberg film or the Broadway musical and coming into this I, I was hoping for more emotional impact. I didn't quite get it. And I do think that ultimately waters down the experience, but there's certainly things to recommend about it. Nevertheless. So 6.4 for yes. me, 6.3 for you. That should do it for our discussion of the color purple. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll be talking about the results from this year's golden Globe awards. Scott, they haven't actually happened yet. What's your big, what's your big call right now that we can disprove in 30 seconds? <laughs>
1: uh, someone will be drunk.
0: Oh, well, that's, that's so lame. Okay, Oppenheimer is <laughs> gonna win at least five awards. That's my call. I don't even know if they're nominated yeah. for five awards, but uh,
1: I, I would have to, I would have to agree. I think Oppenheimer will be the big winner in drama. I think Holdovers is gonna be the big winner in comedy or musical. That's my my big call.
0: All right, take it to the bank. We'll be back in fifteen <laughs> seconds to tell you whether we were right or wrong about that. But uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Something Like It's Got. Scott, our predictions. Oppenheimer got five wins. I blanked on how many it was even nominated before, right before this and said five and got lucky. Uh, the holdovers being the. It was close. It was, yeah, it sort of split the vote in the musical comedy yeah. category with Poor Things. We'll get to all that in a second. We are talking about the Golden Globes. In the past, we've done a full episode on this. Um, because we are not devoting a full episode's worth of time to this, Scott, I'm going to spare us the discussion of of Joe Coy and the monologue and any of the jokes. We talked a little bit about it before we started recording. Don't think we need to rehash anything we talked about then or talk about anything in addition to that now. So we can move right on to uh, the big performers, the big winners, the, bit, the big losers, maybe. It, it was an interesting ceremony. I mean, <clears throat> you know, jokes, monologue stuff aside ran pretty smoothly. I think some of the speeches really paved the way for the rest of the award season, or I should say the televised award season, because we had award shows already this season, but not really any of them have been publicly put out there. But fair to say Oppenheimer comes away in the film division as the big, big winner on the night. Five wins, two acting wins, one directing win, the best original score for Ludwig Goranson, and then best motion picture drama Scott Oppenheimer coming out on top as the sort of behemoth for the award show do you think that sort of sign seals delivers the rest of the award season is there is there much of a race left what where are you thinking for for Oppenheimer and its role in the broader picture
1: yeah I mean I'm not gonna you know lock it and throw the throw away the key but I think we're we're getting there I mean it was already sort of the favorite for best picture before the Golden Globes, I think this is just sort of confirmed um, that it uh, it is firmly in the lead as you know um, as as the race is going. It is ahead of you know other big contenders like Killers of the Flower Moon, for example. That you know you would you would have expected also just at the start of the year to be right there at the forefront. I think it, it's clearly ahead of, of Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, also, you know, I think, you know, sometimes with the Globes, you look at, well, there's two big, big, big winners, right? Because you have the musical or comedy winner. Mm-hmm. You know, which one is it going to be when they are meshed together at the Oscars? Poor things being the musical or comedy big winner here. And I don't know, I, I've yet to see the film, but I can't, you know, it, it, it is shocking me that, some, that a film as idiosyncratic, from someone as idiosyncratic as Yorgos Lanthimos, um, is able to to win that award. I mean, sure, the favorite also his previous film also did very well in awards circuits. Um, so I'd, he, I'd he say cleared... Poor
0: Things is even more yeah, that's kind uh, of idiosyncratic and weird than the favorite was.
1: Right, and so you know, it's a, it's able to to come out on top in this specialized category at the Golden Globes with a, a different voting body, the Hollywood Foreign Press. Uh, but when you throw it in the the mix with the rest of the pack, the Oscars, you know, we've talked much before about the Oscars voting demographic and, you know, it's changed. But sure. to to some extent, it's still the same as it has been before. Um, you know, I feel like some people are, are probably certainly going to be t- turned off by poor things more so than maybe uh, among the Hollywood foreign press. And so that just strengthens Oppenheimer's case, um, the fact that, I don't think it really has a challenge from the musical or comedy category if it does it may may maybe the holdover still with a better chance than than um you know the than poor things simply just for the point i'm making there because of the the kind of film that it is it's a you know warm cozy holiday movie you know that evokes the 70s i mean it's it's a 70s drama in 2023 so um that's what the holdovers is. I could see that still being a, you know, a conversation piece, but I think it's Oppenheimer right now. I think it has a, a clear lead ahead of Killers of the Flower Moon, the Holdovers, Poor Things, Barbie, and you know, the the like the other films that are are there in the the major categories.
0: Yeah. I it was sort of a triumphant flag going into the ground in the award season race it hadn't really been lauded overly much in awards season thus far with mostly the critics awards coming out and killers of the flower moon, obviously being showered with a lot of praise, other smaller films like past lives and even some more, even like more indie stuff than that, even getting, getting Pat like passages, getting, getting some love from critics bodies. But I think we kind of knew that the, changing of the tenor of the race was going to begin as soon as we moved away from the critics awards and into the sort of industry, uh, the more directly industry given awards. This is, I guess, technically still a critic body, although does anyone really know what who really know who the Golden Globes body even is? Technically not the HFPA anymore. If you want to get very technical, technical, if you about believe it.
1: Ricky Gervais back in the day, it's a bunch of people who were susceptible to being bought. But uh, Sure. Yeah.
0: And, you know, who knows how different that is now? Obviously, the voting body itself has changed dramatically. We talked about this last year, the voting body is up three, three and a half times the size of what it used to be. And if you believe them, there's a lot more diversity in the voting body now than there was before. But yeah, it's sort of this. The Golden Globes have always sort of been their own thing and they've wanted to be and sometimes have been an indicator of of the trends of award season moving forward because they sort of are the big first big tentpole of award season and are, generally speaking, I think probably more of a conversation starter and conversation guider than some of the other other bodies that vote before them really are. And Oppenheimer certainly won the night getting Killian Murphy, a Golden Globe, getting Robert Downey Jr., uh, a Golden Globe, both of whom speeches I thought were really strong, especially Robert Downey Jr.'s. I think you could sort of tell immediately why everyone in Hollywood really likes Robert Downey Jr. And we haven't really seen a lot of him in those kind of spaces and environments since the end of, you know, the Avengers saga that he was a part of. And the fact that he now sort of, you know, four or five years later, comes back and sort of shows you the, you know, consummate professionalism and charisma that he has up there on the stage. And yeah, I think he's, he's sort of got that and, I'd say that supporting actor category is like maybe one of the categories where, you know, there's actually potentially a race. But I'm curious if that race sort of dissolves with this win, if he can carry that momentum through to other uh, awards bodies like the SAG Awards in a little bit. Like we were talking even before, I think maybe when the nominations came out, that Charles Melton, with all of his critical success uh, uh, on the awards that the critics, the different critic circles were giving might be a challenger you know robert de niro uh obviously maybe not a a, in the awards conversation but certainly a a big name there ryan gosling and then the two people from poor things like there's stiff competition in that category whereas killian murphy here in best actor he he had you know a little bit of challenge from bradley cooper probably for maestro but really his main competition is going to be the guy who won on the other side yeah. of the holdover paul, paul giamatti so we didn't really learn very much about that category here and i think the same is true on the actress side which we can talk about in a little bit but yeah it seems like i especially when you're talking about the holdovers I and mean, maybe we can talk about that next because paul giamatti won for best actor and maybe the race that always seems to be locked up for as far as I, as far back as I can remember at this point, the supporting actress category it seems like it's Dave. I Joy Randall Dave. I enjoy Randolph's category to lose at this point. And it seems like she's not really getting any challenge mounted against her. It seems like that film vibes wise, this is the way I've sort of been thinking about the race is like, that is the closest comp in the Oscars race this year to everything, everywhere, all at once or to Coda, not because it's, a, like there's, they are structurally similar movies, but because I think the feeling that the film leaves you with at the end is the most similar to the way that those other two movies sort of leave you feeling at the end of the film. And somebody was saying, I, I think this was on Twitter, where it's like past lives should be like the stand-in for like Coda and everything ever all at once this year. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This like, like that is is like a heart wrenching, you know, yeah. wistful romance film, <laughs> and that is just not what's happening in those other movies. I think the holdovers is that. And so I think that if if there's a group within the Oscars voting body that sort of coalesces around the types of feelings that those kind of movies give you, I think that they're going to coalesce around the holdovers. Because I think that really is the stand in in the race this year. And I'm curious how things shape up because they haven't really yet gone head to head. We'll see at the SAG Awards if they go. uh, I mean, presumably they will go head to head, especially in the best actor category and then the ensemble cast as well and i think we'll learn a lot of really interesting things it seems like bradley cooper uh a lot of a lot of uh memes going around on twitter today about bradley cooper being really sad to probably not going to be winning an oscar this year and you know he'll go again i guess but yeah it seems like oppenheimer's front runner christopher nolan winning best director which we haven't touched on yet obviously a big moment for him i think there's maybe some question about someone like Martin Scorsese for Killers of the Flower Moon, or your Greta Gerwig for Barbie to be recognized in this. But it, I mean, we'll see. Again, it's always like, we'll see how it develops. But it feels like, you know, Marty's won his Oscar before, and it, and between Gerwig and Nolan, maybe it's
1: Nolan's time to, to finally felt- get the award felt like it was nolan's time just sort of watching the ceremony and the reactions that oppenheimer was getting throughout the night as it was winning various awards and, sure. um you know who knows whether that carries over to the academy but um you know y- you could see it being his yeah. moment much in the way that scorsese finally had his moment after an even longer period of time uh, sure. with departed back in in 2006 but um yeah no i mean i, I I agree with everything you're saying there. I think um, the, the the acting races, you know, I, I do think Robert Downey Jr. has taken a pretty clear lead in supporting actor. Um, you're right to point out his, you know, speech and everything just, especially after the train wreck that was, you know, Joe Coy, to have him up there early in the show just shows, you know, what it actually looks like when you can properly, um, you know, when you have stage presence and charisma and, you know, Know yeah. how to work the room I wasn't um, yellow so,
0: just wasn't yelling the entire time for, yeah you know no reason whatsoever seemingly
1: yeah and killian murphy winning best actor i mean you know you're bringing up the holdovers that is going to be the battle between him and paul giamatti it's and it's an interesting battle because you know again i think killian murphy has a lot of goodwill behind him you know not only was oppenheimer a huge film but it, you know his face was just memed to death it seemed all it seems all over social media and has continued you know to be so in the months following uh, Oppenheimer's release um you know I think a lot of people just think about him instantly when they think about that movie and so it does have that sort of iconic status already it feels like but Paul Giamatti you know was somebody yes he's only been nominated for one Oscar before but um, he you know is kind of a beloved you know, veteran character actor when i mean you know character actor to some extent you know um but can also be a leading man as he proves in this movie um and you know i I think there's a lot of goodwill around him for those reasons too there's different narratives for both of them and um so i think you know maybe you would um you would lean towards killian murphy at this exact moment in time but i could certainly see uh, the narrative shifting um around uh, Paul Giamatti as we get closer to the awards and people just wanting to see Paul Giamatti recognized for, you know, his years of really good work. Yeah,
0: I definitely think the race is still open in that respect. I feel like the things that we learned in the actor category last night were that Bradley Cooper probably doesn't have the juice, which, you know, maybe we already knew before, and that You know, Jeffrey Wright wasn't going like the momentum that Jeffrey Wright maybe had earlier, like a month ago, a few weeks ago, isn't probably going to carry over through the rest of award season. And it's going to be between Killian Murphy and Paul Giamatti. And I I still think that is definitely up in the air because I think we've seen in the past where the Oscar voting body is a little bit more willing to spread the awards around, so to speak, more these days than maybe they would have 15, 20 years ago. Maybe part of that is the is the voting body diversity, maybe just a shift in mindset. But it seems like the Oscar has been more willing to give more like awards to more, more films that they've nominated on the night. Whereas here, I mean, it's really there's a couple exceptions, but it's like only like a handful of movies actually received awards last night. You know, yeah, it, it, it really was sort of like that. And <clears throat> that's just uh, that's just sort of how the way things fell out last night. Oppenheimer was was the biggest winner, like I already mentioned. The Holdovers won two awards. I, I mentioned earlier that it sort of split the musical comedy ballot, so to speak, with Poor Things, which I think was sort of the other winner on that side. We've talked about Poor Things a little bit and how – I don't know why to call it a head scratcher. I think I kind of understand why it's re, it's receiving acclaim. Like, I enjoyed the film, thought it was one of the funniest movies of the year, but it. I will just be – In complete consternation if this film really captivates a large enough group of people within the voting body to like win major awards outside of like maybe a best actress for Emma Stone, which even then I think I might be a little surprised by if she overtakes Lily Gladstone. But I'm saying like I can get why people would be such a big fan of that. But Emma Stone did win for best actress motion picture, musical or comedy. And poor things did take home the statue for best picture, uh, musical or comedy. So it really split the vote there. Do you think that Emma Stone has a real chance against Lily Gladstone, winner for best actress drama for Killers of the Flower Moon? And do you think this film has a chance to like usurp the holdovers position as the main competitor to Oppenheimer?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure about the the second part there for the reasons I've kind of already talked about. That you know, I'm not sure. I feel like the holdovers is definitely more of an Oscar voter. It's more of a, cra- of movie, I
0: mean, yeah, though. it's also just more of a generic I crowd think. pleaser, which is exactly sure. what you were saying earlier.
1: Yeah. Um. So I don't know if if that on the whole it can usurp the holdovers, but yeah, I think Emma Stone has a chance. You know, she's an A list movie star. She has won yeah. an Academy Award before um it seems like this is from what i've heard this is a pretty fearless you know performance sure. pretty out there uh performance yeah. um but you know lily gladstone has a lot going for her as well um you know we're, we're talking about killers of the flower moon being a big big movie obviously a movie you would have pointed to at the start of the year and said hey that you know could could be a big oscar favorite but now you know maybe um the the attention around it is is waning a little bit awards attention at least um i think lily gladstone could certainly be a way for the academy to sort of give a nod to killers of the flower moon and the fact that it was you know a brilliant film in uh, in the eyes of most everyone who saw it um by by awarding lily gladstone who who is you know sort of the the strongest and the central performance in the movie um you know and Giving giving it its flowers in that category, so to speak. So I think you know, for that reason, I, I probably would still lean towards Lily Gladstone having the the juice uh, in this category. But um, you know, again, we we don't know for sure because um, they haven't gone up against each other yet. I think the SAG Awards, uh, which you mentioned, will be a, a good test of that um, because they they will be lumped into the same category, and uh, and I think. Whoever comes out at the SAG Awards on top will probably also end up winning the Oscars.
0: Yeah, I think that, I mean, it certainly would be the best indicator. I think it's super interesting, that race specifically, because it kind of feels a little bit like what we saw last year where we went into the season thinking Kate Blanchett got her second Oscar. It's a done deal. Or third, how many Oscars has she won? Uh, she's <laughs>
1: won three. Yeah, she's won three. So the Aviator, a... Blue Jasmine. Like, yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. So you know, money in the bank. She's gonna win her. She's gonna win another Oscar. She sorry, she
1: would have won three if she had gotten Tar. That's what okay. I okay. That,
0: yeah. It's got it. Good. Yeah. 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 So like, would have won her third Oscar. It's like we were thinking, she was, you know, money in the bank for a third Oscar for her performance as L- Lydia Tar, Michelle Yeoh coming in, winning for everything, everywhere, all at once. I don't really think that the those those arcs are really exactly the same because I think that. Frankly, I feel like we thought Lydia Tarr was more of a lock for the award than we think Emma Stone was coming into the season. And the times of these movies are a little bit different. But Lily Gladstone would be has a similar maybe story to Michelle Yeoh. Doesn't have this long career in Hollywood or making making films in the industry, but does have the, uh, you know, the the journey for her people and the identity of being an indigenous person acting in the Hollywood film industry and things like that. There is this big really moving narrative and she, frankly she gave him a, a great speech probably the best speech mm-hmm. of the night last night as well which i think is something that michelle yo really capitalized on as well in her awards race and her awards win she really was able to deliver very uh, you know effective and moving speeches and i think that there was a similar spirit in what we saw with lily gladstone and her acceptance speech last night so in that sense like i kind of think that emma stone doesn't have a chance in this in this and i and one of the things that you were also sort of referencing like this is. This would is maybe where you can actually award Killers of the Flower Moon because, you know, with maybe some exception in a couple below the line categories, which I still don't even think it's necessarily the favorite in. You don't see it winning adapted screenplay. I don't think especially not now that that category is even fiercer with Barbie going to be in it based on the ruling that was made last week by the Oscars about where it could compete. I don't think that you're going to see it winning best director at this point. Although, you know, we'll see, I guess. And I don't think that you're gonna see it winning best picture. So I think that they may take their opportunity here and say, you know, it's a it's a win 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 if we if we put the award here for for Lily Gladstone. It's absolutely deserved. It's the way to recognize the movie and it just sort of fits the picture. So I, I think that Emma Stone might might end up fading pretty fast in this race. And to your point, I think we'll probably see a, a big win for Lily Gladstone at the SAG Awards and I think we'll probably, by the time the ceremony rolls around, I think the category will be done.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think you're probably right about that. You could contrast it with, let's say, Yorgos Lanthimos' last movie, obviously the favorite, which uh, won Best Actress for Olivia Colvin, which was an upset at the time, right? Everyone expected that. Again, the dramatic winner of the awards circuit, in that case, Glenn Close for The Wife, was going to take the award. Obviously slightly different narratives because Glenn Close yep. had, you know, she was she had the gold dress right. She thought that she was going to be taking home the award that night after all of her nominations, which Lily Gladstone doesn't have that. But you know, it, it was unless a, she wears a, a gold move.
0: dress to the award show, I guess. Yeah. I
1: don't know. <laughs> it was a shocking move. And again, when you consider that they did that in a scenario where you have, you know, well known, well loved actress Glenn Close getting shafted for Olivia Coleman, who at the time was, you know, kind of a breakthrough performer. A bit of a
0: newcomer. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, you could easily see the same thing happening when you have an a Lester and Emma Stone there with the comedy category and, you know, somebody who's only been in a few movies uh, in Lily Gladstone and this being really the first big movie that she has done. So um, just, you know, another interesting sort of comparison point. But I think on the whole, I, I do agree with you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so that was those were sort of like the big awards winners. I think there's a couple of things to note in here. One, although there was a point in the night where I was like, hmm, if Sandra Huller pulls an upset and beats Lily Gladstone in Best, uh, best Actress Drama, does that mean that Anatomy of Fall could actually take the Best Picture Drama Award off Oppenheimer last night? Because Anatomy of Fall came out pretty strong out of the gates. Not only did it maybe, as expected, win the best picture non-English language category, which, although competitive, seemed like a, a pretty big gap between Anatomy of Fall and the rest of the pack in that category, it won surprisingly, and maybe even the biggest surprise of the night, in yeah. the best screenplay category, which, again, to the, we'll have this conversation many times over the next couple months, I'd imagine, but... It will sit in best original screenplay, which is now a weaker category than it was before when when with Barbie being moved out. So then you have something like I think the holdovers is an original screenplay you have May, December. You have Anatomy of Fall. That's an interesting race and Anatomy of Fall sort of staking a little bit of a claim there. And I think that award alone coming from this film, which is not going to be in the best international feature category because it was not selected by France for. Uh, it's, it's national selection. That is the taste of things The Tron on hung movie, which we'll talk about maybe hopefully at some point later this year before the award show, if not just in passing, it seems like anatomy of falls opening up itself as a contender a to get a nomination for best picture, which maybe was, it was already on the bubble for, but b actually compete in the best screenplay. And it'll be the original screenplay at the Oscars category. Scott, what are your thoughts on anatomy of a falls performance last night?
1: Yeah the screenplay was a big surprise to me you know because it was in there with the Oppenheimers as yeah. well you know it it, it, it was a general in one category, screenplay category. Yeah. yeah um and for anatomy of a fall to to come out on top um you know what was a surprise i mean the the movie has a very good screenplay but it's not even necessarily a film you think of as being a screenplay movie if you will in the same way that you think of something like May December being a screenplay movie, or uh, even Barbie, I think uh, you could have seen taking home that award for Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. You know the big, you have the big names there attached to Barbie when you when you think about the the screenplay. Um, so it, it is a it is a surprise. I you know again going into the night, I would have thought maybe this is the place where May December can get some recognition because. Um, you know, I think the screenplay is one of the most el- uh, praised elements of that that movie, and there's just a lot going on there in Sammy Birch's script. Um, but now it seems like, you know, like you're talking about in, in the best original screenplay category, it may have been usurped by Anatomy of a Fall. And, you know, if it doesn't win there, then, then May-December is most likely getting completely shut out. Um, it's not really going to win anywhere else. Um, so yeah, uh, it's it's a strong performance by the film. I, I don't know that it will, you know, bear out much in the long run, other than to see it, it win Best Original Screenplay, perhaps at the Oscars, and, and then, um, well, yeah, as you as you say, it's not going to be eligible for uh, Best Foreign Language Film, but to most likely get a nomination for Best Picture. Um, I think that's the only impact that it will, will probably have. But those things would probably. Leave likely before the the golden globes even but it is interesting to see you know that um it was able to to beat out some of these other uh films like you mentioned like the holdovers and um yeah. and uh may december which will be its competition at the oscars
0: yeah fascinating development there maybe the most fascinating one of the night to be, to be honest just because of the surprise i think like you were saying i think people are expecting a fight between Oppenheimer and Barbie in that category here at the Globes. And it didn't obviously yeah. pan out that way. Uh, I think with that, like the lo- talking about the losers here, you know, we've been referencing Barbie just because it was up for so many awards. Didn't win too many. It did win too. It one best original song, which did have every nominee in the category. Like, OK, obviously, that's that's being, uh, you know, that's being a bit hyperbolic. But it had three of the six nominees in that category. What was I made for? I guess, I don't know. I just kind of said, like, a, that, was probably, that was probably the one I would have guessed last of uh, the one that was going to
1: win, just because. Billie uh, Eilish, I think, has won every single award that she's ever been nominated for. Yeah. So I think that, she for, that has to be taken into account. Yeah.
0: She won for No Time to Die as well, didn't she? Yes. Yeah. So and every
1: Grammy she's ever been nominated for, I think. So.
0: Yeah. So that, that was, you know, Barbie's category to lose still is. It's just a matter of which song it's going to be at the Oscars, I'd imagine. And then. Uh, your favorite category, Scott. The uh, let me make sure I get this correct here: cinematic and box office achievement award. Uh, you say Barbie. it's a win,
1: but I say it's a loss, Scott.
0: Oh, sure, okay. Yeah, you don't think Taylor Taylor was uh, excited to be nominated in that category?
1: No, uh, I, I'm I'm joking. You know, obviously, it is great that audiences were were paying attention to a movie like Barbie more so than you know Guardians of the Galaxy Volume. Uh, two which was three three, which was also how many of those things have there been yeah there's been three um but yeah it's 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 really it really is sort of an insulting award that it exists we've we've talked about this before the with the whole best popular film thing in the oscars a few years ago um there's just there's just a lot of problems with the the concept of the award sure um yeah and you know the idea that we need to invent a separate award to recognize blockbuster films, which you don't like. If if they're good enough, then they're worthy of consideration alongside everything else. Look at and, Tom in, Gun and Maverick the past last year. There. Look at Nope so, last yeah, year. Yeah. yeah,
0: I mean, look you at. Know. I mean, frankly, in my opinion, look at Spider-Man across As the, the Spider-Verse the this World year. Water.
1: Yeah, so so that's bad. And then Margot Robbie in the speech saying, "Thank you to the Hollywood Foreign Press for for creating a an award for movie fans." Is honestly just a laughable comment to make because you know what are these other awards for, right? Did you
0: lose respect for her?
1: how, How exactly are the people who are going to you know five movies a year and only because they've been shoved down their throat with the marketing or because they you know played with the the toy as a kid or read the comic book as a kid? How are they the movie fans and the people who actually go out and put in the time and effort to watch you know the holdovers or May December or Anatomy of a Fall? How are how are we not the movie fans? I, I that that is perplexing to me to describe it in that way. But uh, we're I, all I
0: movie fans, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, I won't I won't rant too much. It's a pointless award, you know. Greta Gerwig was emotional throughout the evening. Uh, she was emotional when Bre- Billy Eilish won, but I couldn't help but notice that. She didn't even really tear up when when Barbie received this award, which I think you know is a signifier in and of itself there that
0: um well they know it's a deeply unserious award, so
1: yeah, and that uh it, it's it's you know as much as I enjoy seeing greta gerwig at a major seeing Greta Gerwig at a major award show collecting an award on the stage um I you know it it pains me to say it, and this is big for me to say it, but I think I would have rather her not win anything at all than have her only win one award and it, it be. <laughs> this monstrosity
0: sure fair enough well I, I won't make you linger on that but it does not bode well for any any lingering chances that maybe margot robbie or ryan gosling had in these above the line categories i think barbie's going to compete pretty strongly in a lot of below the line categories i think its main competition in, in some categories especially are going to be poor things because the the production design of those two production films is design, probably yeah. probably what stands head and shoulders above uh the competitions it'll be an interesting fight so i think it's gonna it's gonna be in competition for some below the line cat below the line categories but i think this signals that it's maybe not a major
1: competitor in the above the line areas yeah i think you're right and obviously oppenheimer will have a say and below the line too it did win best original score um yep on the night two for ludwig Gorenson, which um you know is a category that it probably has uh, you know the the most mojo for? Although I was hoping for hoping and praying for Joe Hisaishi, I, I don't think it's going to happen for him.
0: Yeah, I have so many mixed feelings about this because I think it is absolutely fucking insane that he was not nominated. I'm not even nominated for Tenant, which is just like the one of the craziest things ever in that in that category. So I'm glad there's getting like a little bit of justice. I mean, the score itself for Oppenheimer is is amazing. It's not as good as Tenet, in my opinion, but and
1: he is an already, He has already won an Academy Award as well. So
0: did he win Black, Black Panther? Black Panther. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I would love Hasashi to win. I mean, that would just be incredible. Um. So no, no notes. But if if that is ultimately what the race comes down to, is between, uh, hit you know between those two, those two individuals, then that's all. That's all W's for me over here. Yeah, that's true the other two big losers just worth calling out maestro which we referenced earlier bradley cooper you know is he probably going to get nominated in both actor and director probably but unlike even a few years ago with a star is born i think he's got no chance in either category so i think he's pretty much done and dusted there maybe it'll compete in below the line for hair and makeup but i'm not i'm not 100% sure exactly what that category looks like and if it really stands a chance uh, but we'll think about that a little bit more as the time grows closer. And last one, you were just talking about uh, just a few minutes ago. May December feels like a, a big loser. Not that it was going to compete for the biggest of the big awards, but Charles Melton had had some heat in supporting actor. And it was considered a big contender in the writing category. I think it still has a chance to your yeah. point. I, I think it is interesting that anatomy will fall won It definitely lessens the heat around May December for because of where it sits in the Oscars race. but. There are certainly more shows to come. The WGA awards, you know, probably maybe the biggest one, still to come. And, and I and I think it could be interesting to see if it has a chance to overtake *Anatomy of
1: a Fall*. And you have an international voting body with the HFPA recognizing an international film as well. Um, yeah. As opposed to, you know, the Oscars will have. A, They're
0: a more vote. international than they used to be in terms of the Oscars, but it's still predominantly yeah. Hollywood people. So.
1: So, so May, December, you know,
0: may have a shot in that regard as well. Is Haynes like a, I mean, we've talked about this before. Like I I wonder, cause I kind of feel like. But he's, he didn't write the
1: screenplay. Right. So he, he, he would not. But get it's thought any...
0: of as his film though. I know it's Sammy. Sure. I mean, he has a co, he has a co-screenwriting credit. Doesn't it? Is it just Sammy Birch? I thought they both. I think it's, her.
1: Her. I think it's a solo credit for her. Yeah.
0: Okay. It's a solo credit for her. Got it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I know. I actually don't really know what Sammy Burt, like
1: her rep
0: in Hollywood. I mean, she, is. this is
1: the first thing she's ever written. So Yeah, she but she's like
0: she's finished. worked on other yeah. stuff though. like she's been uh, yeah. in Hollywood, just not doing screenwriting. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if she was like a critic or something or what it was, but before. But yeah, but I was just thinking like it's still thought of as like a Todd Haynes. Fi- I mean, it's a Todd Haynes film. Though, yeah. Which is, yeah, which is why, like, even though Eric Roth is like the screenwriter for *Killers of the Farmer, I mean, like it's a Scorsese film. So I, I wonder because I don't is Todd Haynes like really that well. Is he loved enough to elevate the movie that far in he, mainstream? He,
1: yeah, he's one of the pro- probably not. He's one of those like your favorite filmmakers, favorite filmmaker type of guys. He's, he's a
0: Sparks type. OK,
1: yeah, he, he's like a, Yeah, exactly. He's like a, uh, you know, in the world of independent film, you know, he's a, a, a godfather, really, like one of sure. the most important figures in, uh, in American independent cinema going back to the 90s with safe and poison yep. and his first films um but yeah i i don't know how much that carries over to the oscar audience right i mean he has received some some recognition at the oscars over the the years you know uh uh far from heaven was nominated carol i think had a couple of nominations mm-hmm. um so he you know he has had nominated films before i'm not there kate uh, blanchett was nominated for that i know but um yeah i i his name probably doesn't quite get there in terms of you know like we're going to give him the legacy recognition here uh in this category
0: yeah and i'm actually it's i'm just realizing that uh he wasn't they weren't even nominated in the category uh so that makes us look kind of silly oh okay yeah that is
1: weird but they'll be nominated for best original screenplay at the the oscars but
0: yeah neither the holdovers nor May, December were nominated in best okay. screenplay. It was yeah. Anatomy of Fall, Barbie, Poor Things, Oppenheimer, Killers, and and Past Lives.
1: So, That's just because they combined everything. But yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So more on that as it develops. The only last the only last award we haven't talked about, unless I'm mistaken, is best animated feature going to the boy and the heron. I think it was probably a two-horse race between them. And probably still is a two-horse race between Boy and the Heron and yeah. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse if there is a race left. But Hayao Miyazaki... Getting lined up for maybe his second Academy Award. Uh, his first, his first one since Spirited Away, of course. So that's cool. I don't know. There's not really much to say. I mean, that's awesome. If either Boy in the Heron or Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse yeah. won, I'd be more it's than awesome. happy. Yeah. No notes.
1: Yeah. I I really, you know, it doesn't matter to me one way or the other because they're two of my favorite films of the year. So
0: final thoughts, Scott, on Golden Globes. Back next year.
1: Uh no, I I mean again we didn't really talk about Joe Coy, but but the the fact that the Golden Globes chose on their you know this was going to be their big return to the limelight right they're they're back after for the first time truly back since uh, since pre not fake back last year since the last last Ricky Gervais yeah yeah since the last Ricky Gervais show Um, and the first thing that they choose to come out of the gate with is. Joe Cole. I mean, they didn't even announce, really, that he was going to be hosting the ago. show. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> everyone was mean saying that. no,
0: yeah. right? I mean, everyone was saying yeah. no to them. And
1: he, yeah, yeah. Um, and They so, certainly would uh, have been yeah.
0: better off without a presenter. I'll, I mean, just to be very, yeah. very frank. They
1: did get the conversation going, but the conversation yeah. was just about how it's possibly the worst monologue ever. I mean, some, world some world of the show. craziest yeah.
0: reaction shots of a crowd yeah. responding to his jokes. Just insane.
1: So, no, the Golden Globes did not do anything to help its reputation. It hurt its reputation if that was even possible at this point. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, you should just go back and watch Ricky Gervais's old monologues sure. because uh, the, the Hollywood Foreign Press has clearly made the choice of, like, we, we are going to focus on massaging the celebrities' apparently frail egos. Um, that's the choice we're going to make rather than, like, let's actually have some interesting, you know, humor, commentary, whatever. For, from the the host portion of the show. Well, unfortunately, because. I don't even think he
0: massaged their egos either because they they hated everything he was saying. So Tr- was like true, true. But like he was, was
1: the, his jokes were on. Uh, in theory, were much weak. safer were than yeah than Ricky Gervais getting up there and saying, you know, that oh you guys all turned a blind eye when Harvey Weinstein was you know around.
0: Yeah, I, I was listening to the to the big picture today, and and Sean finnessy on there, I think made a really cogent point where it's like why do comedians who are tasked with hosting these shows believe that they have to roast like the format of the monologue needs to be a roast and i think that's like a really good point that i agree with like why why do we feel like we have to roast everyone in the room
1: yeah i don't know i think that's you know just sort of maybe what has always been done and uh i don't know if going back to like Billy Crystal and Bob Hope and the legendary sort of uh, Oscar hosts. If that was their approach, I haven't wa- gone back and watched many of those monologues, but yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it does seem the like difference is like a a coming played, from Billy Crystal. Is that approach. like, he's like also kind
0: of an actor, you know what I mean? Like he's like in the industry. It's not like even like Ricky Gervais is like not really an actor. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, that That is true. Uh, I mean, he was, he was just a, Hired gun, and he he had his own opinions, and he was not afraid to share them. Which sure,
0: but I think it, it, it's more amenable when it's coming from inside the house, right? As opposed to like you're hiring some like comedian to come in and like lob some like yeah bland grenades on the festivities. So it's strange, just very strange.
1: All, all I know is it, it's it's the ultimate irony that Ricky Gervais ends up taking home the Golden Globe, the first ever Golden up. Globe yeah. for best stand up comedy uh on the evening which just again sort of highlights yeah this is this is kind of what we needed this is a shot in the arm that we could have used for the show
0: and he wasn't and he couldn't even and he hosted the show at three times and he couldn't even be bothered to show up to accept the award uh very funny good stuff
1: well All i right. mean you know every single every single time he he hosted he was always like um oh well this is the last time i'm doing it they're not inviting me back i mean who knows maybe they literally did not invite him back after the last one <laughs> I think they probably asked him to host again. I mean, would have been better than than this. That's certainly. True.
0: I'm sure that Joe Coy was not on the original list of people they made for hosting the show. I'm. Has I feel Joe Coy ever
1: been on any list of people anywhere? <laughs> I think is the real question. Yeah. List of. Well, I, list think of Hawaii, I think he's very comfortably. I think yeah.
0: I think he's definitely on a list now, and it's to not host a, an award show in the future. So I think he's on a do not call list. I, I think that's safe to say. he's. Yes. If he wasn't on a list before, he's on a list now. Very true. All right. That should do it for episode 260 of Some Like It, Scott. Where can people find you on the social media?
1: I'm at Scarby Dent on all platforms.
0: You can find me at, at shelton2013 on Twitter, Letterboxd, Serialized. Don't forget to also check out our podcast Patreon at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods if you can support us there we'd appreciate that if not it's okay you can still find us on apple Podcasts, on spotify and wherever else you listen to your podcast where we'd love it if you rated reviewed subscribed, shared all that jazz so we continue to reach a broader audience and we really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about the color purple and the golden globes we'll be back next week with a discussion of the book of clarence james samuels follow-up to the harder they fall from a couple years ago we hope you'll join us for that but until then for scott harvey i'm scott shelton we'll see you next time